0: Oh, what do you, oh what? Welcome to Great Minds, a wine-centric podcast where two wine-loving friends take a look beyond what's in the glass and we look behind it, too, discovering the stories, the culture, the history, and the people
1: that make it all happen. I'm Julie Glenn. And I'm Gina Birch. By the way, we also drink a little bit of wine during our explorations and encourage you to do the same while you're listening to this podcast. As Julie mentioned, we often talk about history and people in regards to wine, and our guest in studio today covers both of those arenas. Clay Morton is founder of Morton Wines. Clay, thank you so much for taking time to be with us today.
2: It is an honor to be here. I'm glad that I checked the person box as well as the history box. Yes, you do.
1: (laughs) For sure, for sure. Also, vaccinated person thus in studio. We love it. I know. Yeah. Welcome um, to 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 Florida. This is uh, one of the first times you've been able to travel since covet it
2: is wonderful to be here this is my first trip in 15 months oh and so gosh. while there was some awkwardness right you know between the airport and traveling and being on the plane it is just wonderful to be out and about wonderful to be to see people out and about because yeah. florida's in a very different state than California is. So. Definitely.
1: And you've got friends all over the country because you've been making wine for so long and we're going to get to your story. So I'm sure it's nice to to see face-to-face those old friends, not just on Zoom like we've been doing, right?
2: Yeah. yeah. I've had enough Zooms to last me a lifetime. <laughs> I know, for
1: real. <laughs> Agreed.
0: Agreed. So Gina mentioned to me before we met that there's a big history in regards to you and your family in Sonoma. Take me down memory lane with your family.
2: Well, we are one of the oldest grape-growing families in all of California. Um, we're very Sonoma-centric, um, and Sonoma was one of the earlier wine-growing regions that was settled. But my children will be seventh-generation grape-growers, farmers That's crazy. in California. crazy.
1: Seventh-generation. How old are they now?
2: Um, the oldest of my kids is 13, but we like we just refer to things as G5, G6, G7 in terms of generations because <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's confusing. So, so G7
0: is approaching, actually G7 doing the work. Is
2: approaching, yeah. My um, the oldest in G7, uh, my nephew is 16, um, and so yeah, there's. So there's, he can drive the tractor now. There's 12 of 12 in G7.
1: Oh my uh, goodness. Wow. You guys, awesome. uh, you guys have a ba- enough for a basketball team, right? Well, really, <laughs> in our
2: world, it's enough to, you know, how many acres can we prune at a time? Yeah. That's the metric that we like to use. Oh, well, that's
1: yeah. kind of good. That's a good idea. Yeah. Right, right. So um, if you've ever been to Lake Sonoma, and I know we're in, in that area, I know a lot of people have gone up to that area, and they know the lake, and they've fished, or they've done boating, or they've done some kind of activity on that lake, that's a very big part of your family's history.
2: It is. And that's really, unfortunately, it's a sad part of our family history. Mm -hmm. Um, When we homesteaded our original piece of property in 1868, uh, my ancestors were extremely hardworking and entrepreneurial and continued to homestead neighboring properties and purchase properties around them that they could. And our state grew to four thousand acres by the turn of the last century. Wow. But in 18, 1968, excuse me, exactly a hundred years later, we lost three thousand three hundred of those acres to eminent domain, so that the Army Corps of Engineers could build Lake Sonoma.
1: So you basically lost your entire family fortune at that point. We lost
2: everything. Yeah, <laughs> fortune's a funny word because I'll never forget. I asked my grandfather once, you know, about Prohibition and the Great Depression. You know, how did we navigate that? Mm-hmm. And um, he said the Great Depression, he said, Son, we were so poor we didn't know there was a depression. So <laughs> while we were land rich, which is typical of farmers, we were cash poor. You know, you we literally just lived off the land. There wasn't a lot of commerce happening in that area and we grew whatever we could to put food on the table. And sometimes that was grapes. sometimes it was prunes. We raised livestock. We did whatever we needed to do. So um it was absolutely devastating. I mean there's just no way to sugarcoat mm-hmm. it. We lost and, and I think more from an emotional standpoint, even though we lost our entire livelihood but we lost land that had been in my family for a hundred years, for mm. four generations. At that point, we lost our entire way of life. We lost my grandparents' home, my great grandparents' home, all the farmable land. And you know, there's a silver lining at the end of the story, but I'm sure we'll get to that later. Yes,
0: we will. Well, it's interesting that occurred that that um, eminent domain situation happened in the late '60s. You say yes. So that was kind of before California kind of even really got on the map as a wine producing place.
2: 100% correct. And and if you think about the timing. While Robert Mondavi made his first wines in 1966, they opened the doors to the winery in 1968. So the same year we lost the property. And I think we can all point to that as the benchmark point in time when California wine industry changed forever. I mean, that Mm -hmm. was when the trajectory just absolutely skyrocketed. And so um, on one hand, you know, when we think back about all the we had over 300 acres of vineyard planted when we lost the property. And there was probably another 700 that could have been planted on the property. Mm But, you know, there's no use crying over spilt milk. And we were fortunate to be able to purchase 90 acres um, with what we were quote unquote paid. And we converted 90 acres of prunes into vineyards immediately. So you have to look at it from the perspective that it was actually a really good time for our family to focus full time in grape growing. And even though we were really starting over from scratch with a focus on grape growing, we were able to, you know, continue to expand and buy properties that we could afford and manage, and do whatever it took to, to scratch and claw to get by.
0: Right. So at least in that way, timing worked out. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> yeah, that's,
2: I mean, I mean I, we're, we're it's a stretch, but we're we're trying to make lemonade out of lemons here, right?
1: a <laughs> wine out of grapes, well, right? That little piece of property ended up being pretty pretty impressive. Um, that that's now the rock pile ABA.
2: It is. So, you know, we were left with the 700 acres at the top of the ridge. And it's just because that didn't suit the government's needs. Um, they took the property, as you said, to build Lake Sonoma. And we had absolutely no idea at the time that you would be able to grow world class wine grapes in that area. I mean, first of all, you're dealing with, you know, an area with extremely limited water, with, you know, poor soils. I mean, it's just challenging to get to. I mean, there was just so many strikes against you. But, come to find out that you could probably argue that Rockpile is maybe the only man-made Appalachian in the United States, and I, I don't know about other ones, but that lake created such a unique grape growing region. You know, you have mm-hmm. one of the only AVAs in America that's delineated by elevation, as well as having a geographic boundary, and the reason there's an elevation requirement is because the lake creates its own inversion layer. You actually have your own weather pattern in that area, and so, you know, again, finding that silver lining um, turns out that we have one of the best places in the world to grow grapes because of that lake. So I'm not sure that I would, you know, take that over our 3,300 acres <laughs> back. But you know, again, that's not a choice. Yeah.
0: So. so in the beginning as farmers, then you started doing uh, focusing on grapes. And so you were selling the grapes at that time.
2: We were. Um, we've always sold our fruits to other wineries. And, you know, sometimes I mean, even now we sell to probably 50 different wineries. But that's an important distinction um, that we, the vineyard wa- operation and the winery operation are two totally separate operations. And so sometimes the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. And I, <laughs> we, we have a better way to sum it up around our family. If I don't tell my brothers how to grow grapes and they don't tell me how to make wine, we actually get along fairly well.
1: Yeah, see, so that's kind of an interesting thing. I mean, you were, you were the black sheep, so you come from a family of farmers. But now you are the one who created the label of Morton, and you're the winemaker and the founder of that. So as you said, there are a lot of people... Uh, don't understand that those are two separate entities, the farming and the, and the making of the wine. So how did that kind of come about for so you? they like two different arts, really. Yeah, they are. Yeah. They are. It is.
2: Um, you know, and they're both, um, you know, I would say, somewhat codependent on each other, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we had always been farmers, so it's really it's what my family knew. And you know, I basically spent the better part of my childhood like an indentured servant. My parents <laughs> believed in the adage that the more kids you had, just meant the cheaper the labor force. <laughs> so, you know, for me, it taught me what I didn't want to do the rest of my life. Um, I figured the grass has got to be greener on the other side of the fence, and by the other side of the fence, I meant nothing to do with the wine industry. And my brothers all went and got viticulture degrees with the intention of coming back to work in the family business. And for me, you know, sometimes in life you just don't know what you have until it's gone. Mm. And so it took me getting away from, you know, California, away from my family to appreciate just how special our history was, what an amazing place Sonoma County was. But as I started to think about, you know, coming back, you know, I needed to find a path that that suited my entrepreneurial drive, the the creativity that I wanted to experience in life, um, but was still connected to my family. So that was kind of how I ended up in winemaking.
1: Right. Didn't you, though, talk to your father about the uh, about uh, making wine and tell 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 us that story. I love that story. And he was like, uh, no, we grow grapes. Yeah. So and,
2: I had uh, well, lots of stories. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, I had graduated from college and went back to school, went to UC Davis, um, did their certificate program in enology and was working in other wineries, I had a chance to work with some phenomenal winemakers in California. And very quickly started looking around thinking, what in the hell is my family doing? We own some of the greatest vineyards in Sonoma County. And by my standard, and I don't take this statement lightly, we own some of the best vineyards in the world. Why are we selling all these grapes to other wineries? So I went to my parents and told them, you know, this great idea that I had that we should start making our own wines. And keep in mind, I think this was at the ripe old age of 23. (laughs) It's when you know everything. Of course. Exactly. When you
0: have realized that you know all the things. (laughs) (laughs) So...
2: Um, my parents looked at me like I was absolutely nuts and I think (laughs) I just further affirmed my place as the black sheep in the family. And there was a resounding no. I mean, again, here we had five generations of doing something and it really didn't matter what it was, but something that had sustained our family for that long. And I want to come along and, you know, turn up the apple cart. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, there was a resounding no. And, um, you know, as fortunes would have it, some things transpired that kind of led my parents to think that maybe it wasn't such a crazy idea. Mm
1: -hmm. And and they loaned you the money to buy grapes from them. They did. So (laughs) well uh, we gotta rephrase that. Yeah.
2: Again, typical farmers, right? Right. Land rich, cash poor, we didn't have money to put into it. I mean, literally there was no bank account, there was no, you know, gold bullion buried somewhere. Um, what we had was land. And so I think that was one of their big hesitations, which I completely understand. Is that in order for us to do this, um, we needed capital, and we had collateral in the form oh, of land. Collateral, yeah. So got it. that was a pretty scary thing because mm-hmm. all of a sudden we're going to leverage, you know, our land, our family asset. Um, for, you know, what at the time still seemed like a pretty crazy idea to them. So
0: For the black sheep's pipe dream. Yeah, exactly.
2: Pretty <laughs> much. So, um, yeah, they co-signed a loan for me and put up collateral for the loan so that I could afford to buy the grapes right. from them. <laughs> and, and keep in mind, there are no family discounts.
1: <laughs> no. What do they think about the wines now? What do your mom and dad think?
2: Um, I'm pretty sure they still think I'm crazy. Yeah. I'm know, ready for you to
1: be like, yeah, they're not big raw wine drinkers. They're gonna-
2: <laughs> <laughs> they love wine. I mean, my parent, <laughs> yeah. when you walk into my parents' house, um, there was a plaque on the wall for as long as I can remember, for as long as I could read that says, a dinner without wine is like a day without sunshine. I mean, that was, that was who we are, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I, I know that they're proud of me, but- I also know that they love to do what they do, mm-hmm. and that's the ultimate goal in life, right, is to find something that we're passionate about that we truly enjoy. And, I mean, I think my dad would rather have his eyeballs poked out, you know, by a hot stick than, you know, have to go on the road and actually sell wine or talk about wine. Right. He loves to farm, and, you know, that's, that's our, everyone's goal in life, and thankfully, I absolutely love what I do.
0: Good. So let's see what is happening in the glass. You're known for zins and cabs. What do we have today?
2: Today we are trying our Rockpile Ridge Vineyard, Zinfandel from Rockpile. And we take a, a different approach with our Rockpile property. It is so near and dear to our hearts and it is just such a unique place to grow grapes. We only make single vineyard wines from our Rockpile property. And, you know, I try and stay away sub- from superlatives like best or better because we all know that beauty's is an eye of the beholder, but mm-hmm. there is Absolutely, no doubt that Rockpile wines have a yeah. signature style, a signature expression about them, and of course, I think they're best. But <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. that's for for the individual user to find out. So this is our 2018 um, Rockpile Ridge Vineyards Inn. and it just really embodies everything that makes Rockpile unique and. You know, when you Mm. think about that lake and you think about the inversion layer and lack of fog and being that you have to be above 800 feet in elevation, I mean, there's just there's there's expectations that come with that, right? You're dealing with, you know, steeper hillsides, less water retention Mm. in the soil, better sun exposures, better wind exposures, and you have all those things with an extremely moderate climate and no moisture in the form of fog.
0: That is really incredible. I mean, it hits your tongue
1: like a big fruit explosion. Yeah, but it's got that great acidity in the back, so yeah. it's a great balance of both, right? Oh, it's yeah.
2: We uh, we, we t- I mean, I could talk about the I could talk about the soils for days. I could talk about the lake effect for days. Mm. But at the end of the day, you know, I think what's most important is how does that manifest itself in the glass? And I think you hit the nail on the head, Gina, that. We have the ability to get physiologic and phenolic ripeness at relatively lower sugar levels. And when you consider the acid and sugar are a converse relationship and the ripening of any fruit, when you can pick at lower sugar levels and have all the structure and flavor components that you want, you're going to have higher corresponding acids. And to me, you cannot be a great wine without balance. And you have to have acid to have balance. And right. That's what defines the Rockpile Wines to me, is that they have such great structure, beautiful acid, and yet retain their varietal correctness.
1: I think, um, you know, when when I think of zens and a lot of people think of zens, they think of them as heavy and jammy and high alcohol. This and is definitely not a cooked fruit situation. No, this no. is a, a fresh fruit. It's super fresh, right? Yeah, very. What is it? I heard you say um, at, at one of the uh, wine dinners I, I have attended with you, Clay, that that everyone thinks Pinot Noir is the hardest grape to grow, <laughs> and you're like, no, it's Zin. Like, come on. To me, that seems like it's a hardy grape. What is? Why is that? Why would you say that was more difficult to deal with them than, say, Pinot?
2: Well, it's a common, you know, misconception. Both Pinot Noir and Zinfandel are thin skin varietals. Mm-hmm. Now, Pinot Noir may be a little bit thinner than Zinfandel, but they're considered thin skin varietals. Um, Zinfandel is extremely large, buried. So when you think about the juice-to-skin ratio, Zinfandel actually has a higher juice-to-skin ratio than Pinot Noir does. Zinfandel ripens unevenly. That's probably the number one Mm. challenge about it. Um, The large berries create you know a unique bunch morphology so you actually end up with extremely tight bunches bunches that are so tight that sometimes berries we we use the term be forced out or forced in Mm -hmm. so they just don't have this uniformity like other varietals do and that leads to complications with botrytis with mildew um, it has large leaves. I mean, just all these different unique components out of it And when you have really big, you know, leaves, it makes the canopy a little bit more difficult to manage in mm-hmm. terms of sun exposure, wind Easier exposure. Easier
0: for your mildew to occur, exactly. right?
2: Exactly. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't mean that people necessarily are going to like Zinfandel better when they understand this because we like what we like. But if people have just an inkling of the challenge that it takes to create a varietally correct balanced, structured Zinfandel, I think it gives it a little bit more appreciation. And one of the things that we often say is it's not hard to make a jammy jammy fruit bomb out of any varietal, nor is it hard to make a tannic monster. Mm -hmm. What truly separates an iconic wine is that you have varietal correctness. You have a sense of place and you have that balance and structure that we talked about. And... I think that is what defines the Rockpile ap- Appalachian as a whole. And, you know, because Zinfandel is such a difficult grape to grow and this is such an idyllic situation for it, 50% of the Appalachian is planted is in. But the truth is, is all of the red varietals that are being grown there just excel in that AVA.
1: So speaking of the red varietals, we also have some cab. Um, what makes, I know you've, just, you've described the, uh, the climate and, and everything of Rockpile why is that so s- well suited for Cabernet?
2: Well, I think when we consider the great Cabernet regions around the world, um, they have one thing in common, right? They have proximity to water, mm-hmm. and whether you're talking about Bordeaux that is surrounded by two rivers and you know close to the Atlantic Ocean, or if you're talking about you know some of my favorite Cabernets in the world, the wines of you know, the Bulgari region in Italy, the Super Tuscans. Mm. You think about Napa. You know, Napa mm-hmm. is, you know, close to the San Pablo Bay. So let's talk about Rockpile, right? So not only is Rockpile only 11 miles from the Pacific Ocean, but we are surrounded on three sides by Lake Sonoma. And I don't mm-hmm. think I mentioned that earlier. Lake Sonoma is shaped just like a horseshoe. And the rock pile Appalachian is the singular ridge that runs down the middle of it. So it's like
0: a little peninsula it is, right outside. That's exactly
2: what it is. Hmm. It's a peninsula. So you have this amazing area that, as I come back to that, that very moderate climate doesn't get as hot during the day, doesn't cool down as much at night. And then again, think about the iconic Cabernet regions. You know, they have this other common vein of well drained soils. Hmm. So whether that's because it's an alluvial fan in Bordeaux because of all the water, or you think about Bulgari. You think about up in the hills, you know, when you get that great Cabernet. Same thing in Rockpile. We have these very thin soils where you don't have a lot of water retention. The vines have to work extremely hard, you know, to grow there. And when we look at our temperature data, you know, the most similar appellation to Rockpile is actually Howl Mountain, which I think we would hmm. all agree Howl Mountain's got a pretty well established. Yeah, it's not bad. Yeah, it's not had bad. A, <laughs> had a few good ones from
1: there. <laughs> <laughs> One or two.
0: I, I wouldn't kick it out of bed. I, nobody would kick it out of the glass or anything but uh, the uh the thing about rock pile I just want to make sure that I'm clear is it created by a pile of rocks that were excavated to make that lake
2: <laughs> no the the area has been called um, you know a, a the pomo indians who oh, huh. native americans who settled that area you know centuries ago right um, referred to it as a place of many rocks Cabachana was the name that they used for it and most people believe that they called it that because there is one of the most active earthquake faults in North America that runs right through the middle of Rockpile Ridge. So you have, you know, these I wouldn't say rolling hillsides, pretty steep hillsides, studded by oak trees, and you get some pockets of redwoods, and then all of a sudden you have these huge upturned rocks from the fault. So they have always referred to that as that area. Um, one of the early you know, white settlers in the area was a sheriff and he became a sheriff after he settled his ranch there. And <laughs> the local story is that when he was improving his ranch, so putting in fences, building wagon trails, this is a long time ago, he would take prisoners from the Sonoma County Jail and would bring them up as slave labor on his property. And when you're crossing the fault line and you had to remove all the rock from it, the story is is that the prisoners dubbed it the rock pile because <laughs> they were moving rock to create wagon trails. So again, two very different stories that all have the same common vein of r- this really unique origin of rock from the Rogers Creek Fault.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, and, and tasting this cab, I get, um, I can I can just picture the uh, the 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 area and what you said because it's almost a little a little rocky a little earthy a little maybe anisette or some type of uh, I'm trying to put my finger on what I'm tasting in there but it's
2: well it's super cool I think what we're coming back to is that sense that you know it's not overripe and you know yeah. one of my winemaking epiphanies in life was I got to spend you know a, a, three like, whole days in 2000, so very early in my winemaking career, was Jacques Lardier in Burgundy. And Jacques was the winemaker at Louis Jadot for 40 years, mm-hmm. so of, co- often referred to as the godfather of Burgundy. And we got in this very deep discussion about wine in California, wine growing, and he said something very simple but very profound to me. He said, a raisin tastes like a raisin tastes like a raisin. And I looked at him like, you're looking at me like, what the hell are you talking about?
0: I'm like going Amarone. What are you talking about? (laughs) And,
2: well, I mean, it's a perfect lead-in, right? Is that, he said, if you look at a Cabernet berry, a Zinfandel berry, and a Pinot Noir berry, they look totally different. Very easily distinguishable. Different sizes, different colors, slightly different shapes, and totally different flavors. The thickness of skins, everything about them is different. But... If I handed you a Cabernet Raisin, a Pinot Noir Raisin, and a Zinfandel Raisin, do you think you could tell the difference by the way they look or even by the way they taste? No. Uh-uh. Right? It's I mean, really
1: interesting.
0: Once you get that yeah. sugar too high, you can't differentiate. Exactly. Yeah. yeah.
2: And and not only that, I mean, does a dried fruit taste like dried fruit? I mean, I mm-hmm. bet you half Americans couldn't tell the difference between a raisin made from a cranberry or a grape. I wonder know?
0: if you could even tell the difference between a uh, blind tasting of a golden raisin versus a regular
2: I would almost guarantee you know. Let's do some blind raisin (laughs) tasting. If you eliminate that that sense of sight, that major sense that we all use. So his point was that as winemakers push the envelope of ripeness, not only are we homogenizing sense of place, you know, but we are completely homogenizing, you know, the flavor profile between varietals. And that's not a good thing. So. Is so
0: like the case with low buck wines, yeah. you know, I mean, they all taste basically the same.
2: Absolutely. And, and in
0: fact, even sometimes in like the mid range to high end cabs that I'm I'm getting, they kind of all taste the same now.
2: I think you, you saw that trend in California and it's really sad. And when you really start to think about it, you know, again, California winemakers that are picking Cabernet at, you know, 28 bricks or higher and then putting 100% new oak on it. What are you tasting? And it's not to say that people don't enjoy that taste. So. This is not a discussion on quality. This is a discussion about expression of place. And if you come back to the most basic aspect that makes wine special, is that every single bottle of wine tells you the story of when and where. And mm-hmm. I, I, I'll, I question people with that all the time. I said, Think about what you've consumed today. How many things that you have put in your body do you know when and where it came from? I mean, it's truly a distinguishing little. factor about wine. So. As these vineyards get riper and riper, we're losing one of those core components of what makes wine unique, and that's that that factor of where. Because all of a sudden, you know, Howe Mountain starts to taste like St. Helena, which starts to taste like Calistoga, which tastes like Oakville, Oakville, which tastes like Rutherford. Because when you pick Cabernet at twenty eight bricks, they're all dehydrated. Well, so, and then,
0: so you get to that, and then but then you t- have the winemakers or like the people who treat it like a commodity, really. They just want it to taste the same every year because they don't want to have a surprise and have their consumers say, oh, wow, this is so much leaner than what I'm used to, and then turn away from the brand, and the brand loyalty goes away. So it becomes like this uh, a business thing in which taste is sacrificed for consistency and like good taste and truth to the grape and the vintage. That is sacrificed for the sake of moving palates.
2: we we call that McDonald's, we call that Pepsi, we call that Coca-Cola, right? It's commoditization. And again, who am I to criticize what other people, the business decisions they make? Because I think we talked about some brands before we went live that have been very successful that have followed that model. And we joke all the time that you know every wine consumer needs a gateway drug or a gateway wine, right? And some of these wines that are more formulaic and have higher residual sugar and maybe a little higher volatile acidity and more new oak are very or like pleasing. Vanilla extract. Yeah. <laughs>
0: are very pleasing to the palate 10 pounds of mega purple (laughs) but
2: for you know to me again the farther that we get away from the core of that sense of place and expression of time you know the more we lose our soul Mm -hmm. and so because we are so small we're such a tiny producer we can stick to our laurels or we can stick to you know our beliefs in that expression and you know is everyone going to love every wine i make no you know, and that's okay. Well, I am. Well, I
0: mean, <laughs> and I'm not just saying that because you're here in the studio. I mean, we know. i say this if you were on Zoom in California. <laughs> but I mean, they're great. Like that Zinfandel has got a really good feminine quality about it. And then I would say the cab has like kind of a more masculine thing. But I'm not talking like Aquaman masculine. I'm talking about long and lean masculine. Oh, yeah. You know I like I'm that. talking about yeah. like punk rock, skinny uh-huh. guy,
1: but muscular. Yeah. It's, it's, they're both really, really good. Thank You're you beautiful. very much. So uh, Clay also makes um, a loam cab. You make some dry creek, which we never got into your dry creek vineyards. We're, we're running out of time for that and a, and a great uh, Sauvignon Blanc as well. Dabble in some rosé, but that's already sold out for the year. <laughs> <laughs> well,
2: I, you know, I, I, I say this with 100% humility and honesty that you know our wines should be exceptional year in and year out because when you have the unbelievable vineyards, that I have access to, the wine should be perfect. And I don't mean perfect in a hundred point score sense. I mean perfect in the expression of place and time. And it's no different than, you know, a great chef. A great chef's role is to find the perfect ingredients, whether that's protein, vegetables, fruits, and not screw it up. Right. Right? the, the that fish, when it's lying caught, is at its purest state right there. If it gets overcooked, that wasn't the fish's fault. No. Right? If he seasons it improperly, that wasn't the fish's fault. And so that's how we approach wine is every single one of our wines should be exceptional because I have amazing fruit to work with.
0: It's nice. like honoring the sacrifice of the life of the fish or the life of the
1: grape. Just <laughs> doing the best that you can with a good product. Absolutely. Since you mentioned food, real quickly before we go, you've got a partnership with um, one of the most well-known chefs, um, Charlie Palmer. Uh, and and it's that other grape we talked about earlier, yes. Pinot. <laughs> <laughs> I
2: always, I'm glad you mentioned that because people look at me sideways when I talk about, you know, how difficult Zinfandel is to make in comparison to Pinot Noir. And I always like to remind them, like, look, I make I both. I make Pinot. <laughs> I've been making Pinot for 16 years. I'm not speaking from a place of, yeah. you know, ignorance. Of um, sideways. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> not, not sideways inspired. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. Yeah. Um,
2: you know, uh, it is such an honor to work with Charlie. You don't get to be one of the, you know, greatest chefs in American history or well-known chefs in American history without having an exceptional palate. And every time we get together to blend, I learn something new. I mean, his ability to articulate what he is tasting and what he is smelling is just amazing. Mm. And It is just, uh, it's so much fun to work with him and we've been, believe it or not, working together now for 16 years. Wow. We make a tiny amount of Pinot Ore. In 2017, we introduced our second bottling, so we'd always just produced a Russian River Pinot because that's where Charlie's Vineyard is located. And then in 2017, um, we introduced our first ever Sonoma Coast Pinot Award, But the two productions combined are less than 500 cases, so we make a tiny amount of it, and it's just really probably
1: won't be seeing that. It's in Charlie's restaurants, right?
2: You can find it in all of Charlie's restaurants. Charlie Clay country. wines. Charlie Clay. So mm-hmm. not real original when it came to our name, but you know, <laughs> um, I love I love the label. The label we created um, a crest that both of our names start with C, so it has you know some inverted Cs. But it is a crest of a chef's knife and a wine thief. Oh, and very cool! It is pretty cool. So um, absolutely beautiful pinot noir, and just an honor to work with Charlie on that project. All right,
1: Awesome. that's awesome. Clay Morrison is the founder of Morrison Wines uh, in Sonoma. You can find find his wines, and uh, all. How many states are you in?
2: Um, too many okay <laughs> so, but for as small of our production is you know we're in about 30 states which is and you can any, always order direct ex- absolutely Probably
1: your best bet yeah yeah i, I would imagine yeah okay. we,
2: we make 23 different wines on any given year wow and only about five of those are distributed so the other ones are really only available through the winery
1: yeah he's got a beautiful winery too if you ever get up to sonoma around healdsburg go go visit clay i've been there a few times and I've always enjoyed it. So thank you for your hospitality when when people from our area and around the country visit you. And thank you for being with us in studio this morning.
2: It was an honor to be here. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Thanks for sharing this with us. These are great ones. I know, right? Thank
2: you very much.
0: I really appreciate it. Great Minds is produced at WGCU studios on FGCU campus in Fort Myers, Florida. Our producer for online media is Tara Calligan. Great Minds theme music is from the band Victor and Penny. The song is "You'd Be So Nice to Come Home To" by Cole
1: Porter. To get in touch with us, check out GreatMinds.org. For Julie Glenn, I'm Gina Birch. Thank you for listening.